What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me for weekly conversations on purpose with women who have found it and are impacting their worlds with it. This is not really a place they can call home. So you can imagine how destabilizing it is and, and, and that level of uncertainty of how long you're here, what you can access. And you sort of sometimes feel like you're half a human because you're not allowed to do so much legally and you don't have access to so much or you don't feel like you have access to so much here. So it's not a, not a nice place for any human being to exist in. Um, I believe the average the average number of years a person can remain a refugee globally, I think it's about 12 years. Um, and you don't want to see those years be wasted, right? Especially for children, for teens, you don't, you don't get it back. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Deborah Henry. Deborah is a TV host, model, and founder of Fuji Org, a not-for-profit organization that provides education and vocational opportunities for refugee children and youth in Malaysia. In 2009, while in her early 20s, Deborah co-founded the Fuji School together with a university friend to provide maths and English tuition to four refugee children. Fuji Org now encompasses not only the school, but also Fuji La, a social enterprise jewelry brand that funds the school, the Youth Academy that provides training and other vocational opportunities, and the recently launched High Ed Scholarship, to enable refugee youth access to higher education. We talk about the misconception that refugees are a drain on society or social support systems. In fact, the research shows that what they really need is access to education, to healthcare, to the job market, and they will become active and willing contributors. We also talk about how she keeps herself grounded, particularly when the pandemic created even more need in the refugee community. But to begin with, we talk about how her journey began. Yeah, so it, it really all started with this very simple premise that every child has the right to school. And uh, it, is, it is a basic, uh, if you look at the children's rights uh, charter, it is a right that's there. Um, but in a, in a more personal way, it was that shouldn't every kid be in school? I mean, beyond status and labels and all of that stuff. So... That was really it for Shikin and myself, uh, my university friend, and we we started giving tuition to this family for about six months, and after which we got to know the community a little better, and we realized that there was a really big need for education. Um, there was also a huge lack of like resources and funding, so it was difficult to, like, how do you open a school for 100 kids when you have no money to start? So we... We worked together with the community, one of the community leaders, and uh, opened Fuji School in March, March, May of 2009. And um, yeah, it was, it was really simple. None of us had experience in education. Um, we did not really know what we were doing, very young, 20, 20-something-year-olds. 20 and um, we currently have about 200 students. Um, and I think in the past, like, 12 years, probably educated, we've probably seen over 500 students come through our doors. Um, but yeah, it was, I think, I think what's guided us, what, what's important is what's guided us all these years and has kept us, I guess, focused, if anything, has been a child is at the center of everything we do. And, uh, we ask ourselves that question constantly through all our decision-making when we suddenly, when we go slightly off course, um, when we get tempted by other things, it, it's really that 
that uh, statement or question that really helps us um, keep focused and uh, and think about the kind of programs and think about how we've evolved as an, as a nonprofit organization um, over those years. And when you first started Fuji School, were there other not-for-profit education providers in Malaysia specifically addressing that need in the refugee community? Yeah, yes. So there were, but the refugee topic or narrative was very, very disconnected and separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, like myself, my first, the first time I met a refugee family was in 2008 because I happened to host a documentary for UNHCR. Um, so there, there were some nonprofits that were doing work um, in the refugee space, um, but not many. And it was very isolated. It was, uh, yeah, everyone was doing, it was siloed in what they were doing. And it was very much a Band-Aid kind of solution. It, it, it didn't, we didn't look at the problem in the right way. Um, it was very temporary, like, oh, wow, they're here in Malaysia, let's do this. And then you realize gosh, they're here in Malaysia for like five years, 10 years, 12 years. That's not a short period of time. So the whole mindset towards, uh, for nonprofits and, and perhaps anyone else who, who deals with, with refugees is how it's had to change. You had to look at it like if somebody in Malaysia now needs to be able to access enough to be able to build their life today and for the future. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, even us as an organization, we, we, you know, a very simple example is like, we used to say, providing children a basic education what is a basic education you know and and now we never we don't use that as all at all because it's no i need to give these kids way more than that i need to they need to be competitive they need to be able to transition to a new environment um and 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 they need to have that kind of confidence the soft skills to be able to do all of that so um yeah very different state of mind right now uh, than when we first started but but I think it's also because of the media attention, right? There's been a lot more awareness, a lot more conversation about it. Um, we see the refugee crises happening in the world, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in, in Iraq. So it, it's a, there are a lot more touch points, I think, for us to understand. Um, not saying that, that that has helped Malaysians understand and be more empathetic and compassionate. I, I still think there is a lot. I still think there's a huge disconnect with uh with the average Malaysian and then the, the, that person who's a refugee and the re, that realization that I could be a refugee tomorrow. It's not dependent on my education level or my income level. So yeah, that, that is still something that I think there's, there's still required. There's a lot to be done in that space. So um, you mentioned that refugees, they're sometimes here for five years, eight years. Can you just explain what that process is like for, for those who might not know? Malaysia is like a transit point for mm-hmm. refugees, yeah? So then what, uh, what happens? How do they come to Malaysia? And then what happens um, between now and when they're resettled? Exactly. So yeah, exactly as you said, it is a transit point. Um, this is not really a place they can call home. So you can imagine how destabilizing it is and, and, and that level of uncertainty of how long you're here, what you can access. And you sort of sometimes feel like you're half a human because you're not allowed to do so much legally and you don't have access to so much or you don't feel like you have access to so much here. So it's not a, not a nice place for any human being to exist in, in, in that sense. Um, but yes, a refugee can be here for, for as little as a couple of years to more than a decade. Um, I believe the average the average number of years a person can remain a refugee globally, I think it's about 12 years. That's the average number of years. So it's you're talking about like a solid decade of someone's life. 
Um, and you don't want to see those years be wasted, right? Especially for children, for teens, you don't, you don't get it back. So the average refugee in Malaysia, um, if you're a child, if you're accessing school, firstly, you don't, the first barrier is that you do not have access to public education, which means you can't send your kids to school. Um, if you can afford to pay for some form of private education, which obviously is not the case for most because you can't work, um, you may be able to access smaller tuition centers or international, you know, kind of schools that, that you can somehow get into. Um, but that is why places like Fuji school have started 10 years ago, because otherwise you would have hundreds of children today, literally not in school, not able to read, not able to write, to not be educated, to not be exposed. And that's a dangerous thing for them. It, it's hugely limiting, but also for the rest of society, it's not it doesn't benefit anyone have, when you have people that are uneducated. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second big factor is that they cannot work legally. So let's be clear. Uh, refugees are working as we speak. It's not that they're all sitting at home staring at the walls. They are working in many different sectors um, informally. Um, and and uh, many also have home businesses, cooking, sewing, things like that. It's important to also recognize that refugees are not one type of people. You know, it's not this image that you're going to watch on CNN or BBC, which is like, uh, you know, some starving child in the middle of some African country or this Afghan lady or the Syrian lady in the middle of a desert. It's not, they're not homogenous. They, they're different education levels, different backgrounds, different cultures, different life experiences. Um, so there are many refugees in Malaysia who are hugely skilled, um, but there are also many that can contribute to many of the, the jobs that we're looking for, you know, hospitality and, and, and construction. So my point with that is, is that they're, they're, an, they're an existing uh, physical labor force in this country that can actually not just survive on charity and handouts that we are currently giving them, but can actually contribute to, to the economy and contribute to the society and country in which they live, which is very, very important to remember because more so often the, the conversation that we have on refugees is that they're here to take from us. Um, if they win, if they get given something, they win and I, the Malaysian, loses. So it's it's... It's this very binary kind of conversation that's being had, whereas what a lot of the nonprofits and think tanks are saying is the data shows otherwise, that they'd actually contribute to, to all of us. And, and why are we bringing in millions of people from other countries as foreign labor, laborers when we have some individuals here who can do the job while they are here? So that's a huge conversation that, 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 that has been. And we've been trying to push that uh, on the government to say, look, allow for refugees to work legally because they already are. This enables you to, to bring it into the light and to manage it and to, um, and to facilitate it. You create some framework around it as well, which is extremely important. So, you know, yeah, that, that's kind of what we've been doing in the past few years with, with the nonprofits and such. Obviously, with the pandemic and other things happening, it's been a lot harder. Um, but really, just to sum up, in conclusion, refugees here, life is hard in the sense that you're here, you, you're kind of safe, but your limitations are you can't really move around freely. You always have a degree of fear that you'll be detained and questioned and to prove that your refugee card is valid. If you are, an, if you are a refugee here and UNHCR has not fully processed you yet, you're still waiting for your UN card, in which then you're more vulnerable because you have an appointment letter. And that letter really counts for nothing. So you can get detained, you can get um, you can get like 
put in lockup for two weeks, you can get harassed, you can get whatever. Um, and that, and you also don't have access to services, right? So, so yes, it, it, life can be very challenging here. But the fact of the matter is most refugees, you know, you're resilient, you try and make it work, you find ways to, put, to, to take care of yourself and your family. Um, and uh, and what, one thing to point out is actually in terms of access to healthcare, if you have a UN card, um, you can actually have access to the national healthcare system. And I think UNHCR pays 50% of your bill and you get like, I think some local rates. So that's a good thing. Okay. So besides the work that UNHCR is doing in the years that you've been working in this sector, has any progress been made at the Malaysian government level in allowing greater access to education or healthcare or employment? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I wish I could, you know, be more positive with my answer, but um, yeah, it's, I think progress has been made in terms of perhaps more conversation on it. Like it's a topic that I think a lot of people are aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. I I believe in the last government there that we were actually very close to them actually allowing refugees to work legally. Um, Then the government fell and things changed. But the conversation for me, and and I say this kind of as an insider, but also an outsider, it's been two steps forward, five steps back, three steps forward. It's constantly been like this over the years. And to be honest, as someone who's running an NGO in doing this work for the past like 12 years, you know, it's exhausting and it's tiring because we we keep, you know, I, I watch these videos and interviews that I did five, six, seven, eight years ago. And I'm like, I feel like a broken recorder. I'm like saying the same stuff. And nobody, I don't know, nobody really wants to confront it. No one wants to really like, look, you cannot keep sweeping it under the rug. And I think the pandemic has taught us that you can't ignore an issue and think it's going to go away. It's here and it's in your face and you have to come up with some workable solution for it. You know, um, that's, and I just hope that that is something that, that, that this government, once things calm down a bit generally, that this is something really that they need to look into. Um, it doesn't benefit anyone having vulnerable communities, whether it's the statelessness in Sabah um, or refugees primarily in, in, in this part of Mal- in this part of Malaysia. It doesn't benefit anyone. So, and and it's exhausting for us as nonprofits because we're constantly having to fundraise. We're constantly having to pay for like pay for a kid to be educated, pay for families to survive, pay for moms to take care of their babies. You know, pay for medical care. That that you know, it's this is not the reason why nonprofits exist to to pay someone's existence you know we're there to support in ways in ways here and there but not to pay that for a family to survive and you know you think you're getting out of it and the pandemic hits and then you're like back into this washing machine um you know and it's like give us a break you know we can't be fundraising hundreds and hundreds of thousands millions of ringgit just to keep people afloat and this is why it's so important that if they can move to a place if this conversation moves to one of self self uh, reliance then we play a role of support in, in filling the gaps where a family can actually then pay 60 ringgit in school fees a month to, to educate their child. You know, they can pay for basic health care. They're not knocking on our door all the time for that kind of support. Um, and this is something that's really critical because it's just not sustainable. 
Um, and, and, and that's something to just tell the government, like we're all these NGOs doing this work. I mean, we're doing work that somebody has to do and it costs money and it's coming. I mean, there is a cycle here, right? And this is not our job. And it's also not the government's job to, to, to hand, give handouts. But if you create a situation where people can take care of themselves, then, you know, that's when we can be more useful. Um, and this is what I would say to any government official that I'm talking to now, because there's no point sitting there and telling me, yeah, but they're not illegal. They can't. Okay, then, then you then take them out of the country. You know what I mean? Uh, so you got to, either way, decisions need to be made. Yeah, and as you were saying, they actually don't want to be dependent on handouts. They want to be able to create their own lives here and um, have employment and and educate themselves, build skills. So has service always been a part of your life or was there a moment where you were confronted with this problem and you felt you had to act? I think... I mean, I, it, this takes me back to like when I was in my teens, like 15, 16. I feel like I've always had conversations about this sort of like heavy, deeper kind of stuff. I mean, I, I remember sitting on the swing outside in the afternoon with my granddad, um, asking him about like, what was World War II like? You know, and, you know, when the Japanese occupation, when they came to Malaysia, like, how did you survive? What did you do? And I was very, I'm, I've always been very intrigued by war, you know, how it happens, why it happens, the outcomes. Like, and I've traveled to Cambodia. I've seen the, the what happened there with the genocide. Um, uh, you know, it, I've been to Lebanon and experienced the Syrian crisis there. Even India, uh, Myanmar, to actually see what 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 that that you know what human misery can look like, for lack of another word. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's something that I've always just I had an interest in, even when I started modeling at fifteen. Um, I was just out of school and I uh, convinced my parents to let me give me, let me take a gap year. And I moved to London to model. And uh, I remember even when I was there, I was thinking about, Oh, could I do like an initiative, like fashion for food or, you know, it was, so when I think back, it was always there. It, it under, it underpinned other things that I did. And, um, and then I studied political science and economics at university. So I think that was really what solidified, um, my commitment to this space and that when I graduated, I would come back or to come back to Malaysia and I would really see what I could do. So, yeah. And I was just very lucky that then I took part in Miss Malaysia. And then, um, that, then that started, uh, my relationship with world vision, which is an international humanitarian and that I got a lot of more exposure with them. And, uh, and I volunteered a lot and, and then eventually, you know, somehow, Children, refugees became my thing. And, uh, and I think it's really important to find what your what really pulls at you, right? I'm saying passionate about, but it's not just doing something for the sake of it. You really, you really need to, because if you're not, if you're not in it, no one's, you won't last. So it has to be something that you really deeply care about. I've been blessed that I've worked in the entertainment industry and I've been able to find ways with where both of these worlds intertwine and overlap and really use one to benefit the other. And, uh, so that's worked out, you know, I think it's worked out decently for me in that sense. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it has always just maybe been in me, you know? Yeah. You've said that in a very humble way, which perhaps skips over the fact that you've worked really hard to achieve what you have, 
Firstly, in building a platform for yourself in the entertainment industry, and then in using that to address the issue of access for refugees, which at that time was ad hoc and was being swept under the carpet. And you've said yourself that it's been a grind at times, two steps forward and five steps back, which kind of brings me to one of my favorite questions to ask guests who come on this podcast, and that's, what does purpose mean to you? Wow. I mean, you you read a lot of articles and books that they talk about living a purpose, like having a purpose-driven life, right? Um, Is that important to you? I think so. You know, passion, purpose. um, Yeah. And for me, I mean, personally for me, it's, I, I don't think I could do something that didn't have depth to it in that sense. So um, I think purpose is what gets you, get, it's what gets you going. You know, there are people, and it comes in different ways, I think. People, there are individuals who, you know, are business owners or work or, or whatever they do in the corporate world, and they, they solely focused on it, but they do that so that then they can do something else that gives them purpose, right? Um, and then there are those that commit their lives fully to doing social work and humanitarian work because they need to get their hands dirty with it to feel that purpose. Um, but I think more and more in, in, in this world is with the increasing distractions of materialism, of, of information, like, you know, your phone is amazing. It gets, allows you to do so much, but it also is the biggest distraction. It's the biggest temptation. It's the biggest thing that makes you feel like your life's not good enough and you don't have enough and everything sucks. Um, (laughs) All of us, you know, (laughs) you're like, why are they on holiday? So it's, I think it's increasingly becoming more important to have something that grounds you because otherwise what is happiness? What is contentment? What is, when is enough enough? Um, You know, all these questions can come about. Yeah, I think it's important to have some kind of anchor because we live in, you know, this age of distraction and there's so many choices uh, for any any conceivable decision you could make. There's so many choices and it's it becomes overwhelming. Well, well it's interesting you say that you bring up the word choice because there was a, one of my friend's dads um, said this t- to me and it's really stuck with me over the years. He's like, don't ever forget that you're one of the few million people on earth that is fortunate enough fortunate enough and privileged enough to make choices when you wake up in the morning you get to choose what you want for breakfast you get to kind of choose the school you go to what what you want to study at university even the jobs you you uh, apply for um you're constantly making decisions mini decisions all day every day without even realizing it and and he said don't forget that there are millions billions perhaps that don't get to do that you know uh don't get to make the most basic choices in their life they take what is there and what's what's available and, and that's it um and so this is a privilege uh, and and yeah and, and i think also realizing that like you know we get burdened with choice but then that other flip side is well to realize that this this decision that i'm making is that privilege and then i think that comes to gratitude gratitude appreciation that i think a consciousness perhaps that that is uh which is a journey that we all take right yeah i, I think it's important to acknowledge that privilege, particularly in this conversation, right? Because we're talking about having the freedom to be able to decide that we want to live lives of purpose and and have careers which embody purpose where 
for many people, most people, in fact, um, that's not an option on the table. Um, what they need is to put food on the table and a roof over their head. And, survival. Yeah, exactly. For most people, it's about survival. And I think that COVID and the lockdowns has brought that even more sharply into focus as it's highlighted and intensified inequalities that were already there. Your work has always been challenging. You've just talked about trying to get government support, trying to get private sector support. What additional challenges have you faced over the last two years through the pandemic and through the lockdowns and through all of the issues that that brings up for people like the refugee communities you're working with who have already been marginalized? For sure, the pandemic is going to have effects on, you know, economic effects, uh, social, I mean, you know, physical, mental effects. And you're going to see governments have policies and programs to try to, you know, support society in various ways. I I do think um, one interesting thing has been, you know, this conversation on mental health, right? And I and I fear that that's going to become yet another jargon that gets thrown around mental health, mental health. But but it has become something a lot more mainstream um, since COVID started, where you're getting a lot of the very, you know, typical mainstream sectors and people that typically never addressed it really having to confront it. Um, and it's 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 something that uh, you know from children, from students, from in corporate sectors, like now when you tell your boss, you know, I have to take the day off because blah, blah, blah. They're more, perhaps to some degree, degree, a little bit more, you know, sympathetic towards that. So, and, and this then, there herein lies, I think, an opportunity for then individuals, companies, depending on, you know, uh, who you are and what your position is to, to then look at how that can be adapted into, into this new normal or what life is going to be like now coming out of the pandemic. Um, so that would be an interesting thing, I think, to see. Um, I think how people work is changing, right? So, I mean, obviously now companies are struggling, so everyone's like full gas trying to make things work. So, you know, I've not, because I don't, because I've not been traveling to go on holidays and work and such, I've been working, you know, there were times I was working weekends and nonstop and I felt like I was reaching burnout, right? But how do you find, like, but I think at the same time we're, realizing you don't have to travel as much for work or you can do a lot more things remotely. So once again, we'll see how this pans out. And then another thing, finally, that I've kind of found interesting observation perhaps, but is, um, you know, when this whole around the time with this white flag started, well, before it, when, when there was a surge of need demand, like a a huge uh, need from the community and then the white flag kind of came after you, know, you saw people come together in this unbelievable way when society had felt that the government had dropped the ball and we were going to pick it up and we were going to do what was right and make sure that nobody was, no one went hungry, right? And people gave it regardless, didn't ask questions. It was just so like beautiful to see. Um, and I think that was a really beautiful lesson that I hope and pray people actually remember and learn from and hold on to it and realize how you know, realize who helped you when you needed food. You know, was it one of your own creed or was it a complete, completely different stranger? And, and what made them, you know, support you? So interesting things like this to really explore. Um, and, 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 and I hope people really hold on to these things, you know, as you come towards elections and, and um, when we, what really matters, you go, hmm, actually that really mattered. When I was starving, you know, and I think that's a lot more than, you know, bickering about other trivial stuff. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that was really, it was really beautiful to see. I really felt that one of the things that I've noticed that's come out of uh, COVID is how, how much more engaged I am with my little community, like where, whether that's neighbors, um, people that, uh, are very physically in my community. I feel like it's almost been taking a step back in time because our world shrunk a little bit. We become much more focused on the problem problems in our backyard. And I think that that is a really good thing. And I hope that some of that stays. I wonder if you're finding that now that businesses are, people are going back to the offices, businesses are cranking up again, that when you put out appeals for donations, you're getting less of a response. Like, is there a bit of a fatigue now? Yes, exactly. Um, and this is the thing with donations, right? It, you know, there are peaks, right? And you look at these things in disbelief and be why why did why did they raise so much like what happened what were the factors and and then suddenly today trying to get someone to donate to educate a child is like you're you're trying to squeeze blood from a stove like it's do you know how important an education is like you know and 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 that is that is the struggle of fundraising it's it's trying to make it relevant trying to be trying to pull the heartstrings just enough to get people to like want to give as well but definitely there's a degree of fatigue because I'm even fatigued and I'm in this line you know I'm tired of just the the, the constant like having to help like constant people you know but yeah because it's not sustainable as you said the things that need to be fixed are the institutional issues and the systemic issues yeah And, and this is why it's interesting we talk about education right because it isn't something that you know you know yes food water and shelter are are keys key necessities for survival but you know a kid without an education today we're really setting them up for failure um so we're you know in a lot of our messaging when we communicate with our donors and audience it's like like guys like beyond food and beyond water is is an education it's just as important um because you want to move away from donating and constantly having to educate somebody because that's that is going to when you educate a child you impact generations um, and it's never just the ch- child, it's them, it's their family, it's who they marry, it's their kids. If that kid gets a degree, the chances are their kids will have degrees. And that impact is felt, right, for generations to come. And so it's really kind of getting people to realize that that's, that's the greatest gift you can give someone, um, you know, beyond putting food on someone's table that will help them, you know, live another day, if that makes sense. Right, because education is what guarantees a future for entire communities. And I want to talk about that specifically relating to the work of Fuji School and refugee girls. Because globally, I believe only 50% of refugee children are in education, and that number is even lower for girls. But at Fuji School, more than 50% of your graduates are girls. So are you doing something different? When you create, generally there's an environment there that supports girls, A, attending school, B, staying in school uh, and and seeing it as an option for them. If you can create that environment, then yes, um, you know, it won't be a surprising uh, statistic. Um, And, uh, you know, and even now we have our higher scholarship program where we're fundraising uh, to basically fund the scholarships of five deserving refugees uh, university degrees 
And, um, and you're seeing a huge number of female applicants. So you have, you know, the girls are out there and they're saying, you know, I want to study, I want to get educated. And I, I want to, I don't want to get married and have kids before that, um, which is very, it's an important decision and choice that they make, right? And so I think the whole part of this education on women's rights and female education and female female rights, uh, female decisions is it's not you and I saying to them what's right for them. It's, it's them being informed enough to be able to make the best decisions for themselves. So that is the key part to me that, that, you know, people go, Oh yeah, but she just wants to not go to school. She just wants to marry at 19. I'm like, does she really like, you know, we need to look at this from a more objective point of view and really assess all the factors that led to this. Um, and that's, I think for me, that's really important when it comes to the, you know, when you talk about yeah, women's rights and in a, empowering people, to, women to feel that they can make choices for themselves without the, that threat and that insecurity of like in their environment, which, which sometimes the threats are so subtle that you and I don't even notice it. And we think that, oh yeah, that's what she wanted. But in fact, it's not. So, so I think that's the important part, I think, in, 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 in making sure that women, more women are having access and more women are present in different sectors. Yeah. And I guess education gives that to them, right? The awareness of the different options that might be available to them. So can you tell me more about the Fuji High Ed Scholarship, how it works and what have been the barriers to accessing education? I mean, obviously in Malaysia, no education is available to refugees. um, But uh, what are the other barriers that refugees are facing when it comes to accessing higher education? Um, Yeah. So you have, you'll have a bright refugee youth who wants to pursue a degree, right? And they financially, they're not able to. And then secondly, you have limitations in terms of the universities that, that will accept you. So there are a few universities in Malaysia that will um, take in refugee students. And uh, then you have a bunch of online universities. So what we're doing with Fuji Hired is recognizing, so this is in line with UNHCR's global um, one of their global goals to see more uh, youth um, accessing tertiary education. And so we had, we opened our applications a month or so ago, we've received over 300 applications. That tells me that there are 300 refugee youth in this country that want, they have a desire to study more, right? We give them up to 5,000 ringgit a year in scholarship funds so that for some cases can pay for the whole tuition fee and other cases it pays for part of the tuition fee. So supporting them with that financial cost so that they can focus on their studies. You know, and many of us have been beneficiaries of scholarships. Like we know how it changes lives. I've got some Malaysian friends who's, who, who changed their lives and their families' lives tremendously because they had a scholarship to get a degree. And they work for some big companies around the world. Like it is life changing. Uh, I think recently we've seen sort of internationally some high profile examples of the amazing things that happen when refugees are granted access. So do you have uh, some stories from some of your graduates, um, some stories of how these graduates have then gone on to impact their own communities wherever they might have resettled? Uh, yeah, we have. There was one of the stu- one of our students from Somalia. He never really had formal education, never had like your finishing school certificate, and uh, he ended up getting uh, accepted into Nottingham University quite a few years ago to do his 
foundation. Like, so it was a one-year foundation and then into a degree program. So you just graduated a few months ago. It was amazing to see, right? And I mean, Nottingham University, it's a big university, you know, and to be able to, you know, to have that that privilege, it's huge and, and how it just changes their lives. And so many of our students have been resettled um, to the West and, you know, because of their time at Fuji School and, and that those lessons that were like inculcated into them and they, you know, worked part-time, saved money, get a good job. You don't have to go to university. It can be that, but, but you have this vision of how to build a life and what's important and, and maybe certain grounding factors. Right. So it just prepares them to think about what's next. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stories like that of, of just this stepping stone that they're able to springboard off um, to do something else. And, and, and like any individual, right, it's your life. It's to do with it as you wish, but to be able to have these opportunities that you can then use to get to the next level. Um, yeah. And it's really, it's really heartwarming to see, like, to, to see students like, you know, Instagram you and message you and say, Oh, I miss Fuji school. And they see the photos. I, you know, I miss the school. I miss my time there. I want to come back and visit Malaysia one day, you know, and it's, it's, it's that although life was challenging here, it's the, the memories of our school are often so positive. I think that's amazing. And I think it must feel amazing to see not only the life that you've changed by giving that person access to an education which allowed, which became a springboard to them, but also the generational impact that that's going to have. You know, you're not actually just impacting one life. You're going to be impacting entire communities through that access. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing through the Youth Academy and also Fujila, because um, refugees can't legally access work here, but you've managed to develop a number of programs to give them sort of vocational skills or entrepreneurial skills or even internships, I believe. So how does that work in practice? We've always kind of sort of employed an approach of like, we kind of just hustle and kind of just do it. I think if you wait for like the perfect situation environment where, you know, someone tells you, like gives you the green light and says, you're good to go. I don't think anyone would move anywhere. So I guess calculated risk to some degree, but, uh, and, and this is the challenge is that even if a refugee is super skilled at, you know, she's amazing at baking or sewing, her, there are so many barriers around her or him that, that, that disconnects them from society. So I can make the, you know, the yummiest bread, but no one knows about me and no one's going to be able to buy it. So the, those are the real barriers that exist. So as a Malaysian, as someone who has a decent network, me starting say Fujila and being able to then have a team and use my, use my network. And, you know, then I, I, you know, I bring in the girls to make certain things and to work with us. Right. That's, it's more doable. Let's just put it that way. But if it was, if, if you're, if you're expecting an individual refugee to do it all on their own without any, you know, local Malaysian support, it's almost impossible. You rely so much on your community right around you that after a while, it just becomes not sustainable for, you know, if you talk about something that's scalable or, or re replicable, that's going to be the challenge in the community because we ran programs in the past, which were uh, livelihood programs. So we would actually work with uh, refugee community groups like Sudanese, uh, Myanmar, Rohingya, all different group, uh, eth uh, ethnic groups to start their own businesses and projects. And very often you just find that they're just like, 
you know, it starts and it's like, it's fledgling. And then it just somehow like the smallest, like tremor and it just, boom, you know? So, so, so Fuji has really been, it's been an exciting four years for us. We, we, we make jewelry, lifestyle accessories. It's, it's as much about making profits to support education, but we need to scale. We need to be big in order to do that. And also importantly, awareness. It's, it's customers that come in and just go, oh, those are a cute pair of earrings. I want to buy them. And then there's, they, they learn there's a bit of a story there. And that's an education piece that's super important. You know, and, and yes, you can employ, you know, refugees to work for you. And you've got to be smart about it and how you do it. And, you know, protection and is always an important element as well at the end of the day. Um, you know, and, and, and this is what I said. I think the real barrier here, and, and I stress this like continuously with everyone we too, is like refugees need to have access. Like they need to be able to access. I'm not saying give them handouts or super special treatment, but access the market. Do you ever get overwhelmed with the size of this issue? How do you just cope with how you put it being sucked back into the washing machine? So I've, I've been feeling it, to be honest. I've been feeling it uh, of late. Actually, the past couple of years has been getting, uh, it's, it's been affecting me, I guess, more on a personal level, feeling really frustrated and then like a bit depressed about the whole thing. And you see, I think my tipping point this year was, I mean, I was running on fumes when when this when we started the food aid, and it was just go 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 go. And but when I when this recent Afghanistan thing happened, and uh, you know the Taliban came back in, and it was all exploded. And I and I know a lot of the Afghan community in Malaysia, and, and hearing their very personal stories, and then it really just felt like, what are we doing? I mean, am I going to be doing this in another ten years? Because honestly. I don't even know if I have the stomach. Like, I don't even know if I have the energy for this. It just felt like such a waste of a whole generation, right? A whole generation of women in particular who had got to a point where they had education, they had, you know, careers, they were making impact, Mm -hmm. they were supporting their families, and that's potentially gone. Um, not just for them, but for their children, you know? Yeah. And just why can't you just let people be, you know, why I I don't know why we need to live in a world where we love to enforce and and over things like, you know, accessing education, the way a girl dresses. It's it's this, to me, it's still this whole somebody making decisions on women um, and, and, and their, their reproductive rights, how they look, how they dress, what they can do, what they can't do. It's constantly, being subjected women women are constantly being subjected to this in different shapes and forms and it's not just something in in countries like afghanistan but also the west but it was like just a few days ago to share with you um we're helping out this uh refugee mom she we we actually fuji actually helped pay for her recent uh, delivery she had a c-section her second child and um recently found out that her um she's having domestic uh violence issues um physical and verbal and such. And when I met with her, she was telling me that, um, you know, uh, I wanted to get an IUD put in after my delivery. And I asked the doctor and she said no, because my husband said no. So there isn't a rule in this country that says a woman, you know, that a, a man must sign off, a husband must sign off on a woman's, you know, contraception, whatever, but perhaps religious, perhaps cultural, and, and a female gynecologist actually refused to give her 
the IUD. For me as an NGO, we work so hard to educate people on family planning. And mm-hmm. we, see the, we see the direct consequences of, of families that just keep getting pregnant and, and, and have, don't have the means to support their family. Like, and we are the ones that have to bear that, you know, uh, pay for their milk, pay for their di- diapers. And you, you yourself, how many, how many, how many times are you going, please send me milk, diapers. So, so you, you see that. And then on, one, on the other hand, you have this woman who is brave enough to say this to the doctor and say, I get an IUD put in and she's taking ownership. She's being responsible. And then she's being denied, um, which was really upsetting for me because you know, and now she's being abused. So imagine a husband, because a husband can rape a wife or force himself upon her and impregnates her. I felt like asking the gynae, like, are you going to pay for the kids delivery? Can I bring the, the lady back to your hospital and also the milk and also the diapers? Because it's so irresponsible, you know, and, and for you to think that you have the right to take that decision over someone's life, you didn't, you're not their counselor there. You're not in situations like that can have a very long-lasting effect on, on a woman's life and her ability to, to do what's right for her. Yeah. I mean, reproductive rights are such an issue, and I think the story that you've just recounted shows how, how problematic that is when it comes to communities that are already at risk because basically it's a form of control. It's a form of coercion, right? If you can control whether a woman gets pregnant, your wife gets pregnant, then you have all kinds of control over her. You have mm-hmm. financial control over her. You put her in a situation where she can't leave you. Yes. Um, and, and nobody, nobody has the right to take that away from anyone. And it, it saddens me that a female gynecologist would have intervened in that way. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So on a hopefully a little bit more positive note, for those people listening who would like to take some action to support your work, um, what are sort of three practical but also useful things that they can do to support Fuji Org and the work that you're doing through your various entities? You know, get involved, and that can happen in a few ways. If you're if if it is something that you know matters to you, if you don't have the time, you don't have the the that 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 physical resource, it's also then contribute right so finances finances are a big thing for many ngos right now because fundraising is just so hard um so you can actually go to fuji.org we have our donate button there you can actually click and you know you could even do 60 ringgit a month which is lunch for many people um to sponsor a child's education i mean that really really does help us because we then can anticipate our funds every month to that we um, and we can budget then, which which is better for us, better for the students, right? We can give them more. Um, so that's one very real way to contribute. Um, you know, like scholarships. Like I mean, it's really where you're, how you want to get involved, and we're happy to discuss and to talk and to see what works best for all parties involved. You know, so definitely those. Uh, two areas that sponsor sponsor a child at the school, but also our scholarship, hired scholarship program. Um, and you can get in touch with us like on our emails, like my personal email is Deborah at Fuji.org. Um, but also if you want to buy jewelry, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, we're online, Fujila.com. Um, and that's another great way of supporting because, you know, you're going to, you want to buy a pretty necklace, but you also want to make sure that your purchase may, has a big impact. Right. And so, you know, with Fujila, we, we say um, small pleasures, big impact. 
that a small pleasure to you can really have a very big impact on someone else. Yeah. And it's not just an impact financially. It's also an impact in terms of skills building. And it's the holiday season coming up. So everybody get shopping. Um, I will certainly be um, buying some Fujila jewelry to take back to the UK with us because we're going back to the UK for Christmas. Um, and and it's it's beautiful stuff and it's really distinctive. Like I haven't seen jewelry like that anywhere. It's 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 not mass market stuff. It's beautiful, um, unique pieces which are also very affordable mm-hmm. considering the impact that they're having. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We try. We try. (laughs) Um, So just to wrap up, if you were to go back in time and give a piece of advice to that younger 20-something-year-old who started Fuji School with four students, knowing what you know now, what would you tell her? Oh, gosh, that sounds like a Miss Universe question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you should know exactly how to answer it. Um, (laughs) I mean, for me, I'm a, I'm a little bit hard on myself in that I would like, could I have done it a bit differently? Could I have been become, could I have tried to become more sustainable faster? Um, but I was also learning so much at that point in time, right? So I guess, I guess, you know, could I have achieved more within a shorter period of time? That's always what I think about, right? With, with, um, that's, yeah, to be very honest with you. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess the reality is, fast forward 12 years and you know still here doing this so um and, and that was something that we said as long as there are refugees here in malaysia and we can do it we will uh, that was sort of a bit of a, a commitment that we made and so the fact that we're still here doing it i think it's positive but i i, I always put i think that there's a bit of pressure to not just be a typical charity i don't want to just be here and say oh i'm a charity and then you know you get brownie points for being a charity i i think we need to hold ourselves up to standards um and, and really be able to make a big difference and not just for the sake of it. Yeah. Although I do think that the fact that Fuji is still here 12 years later shows that you have built a sustainable organization. Otherwise, you wouldn't still be yeah. here. <laughs> and you stepped up and provided education to the refugee community without any background in education and at a time when access was limited and uh, piecemeal. So I think you've actually done something really remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then what's next? Do you have, what are the next, what are the, your plans for Fuji or sort of in this post-pandemic period? Well, honestly, right now it's very real things where we're looking at fundraising. So it's some interesting fundraising ideas, how we can like partner with banks and, and businesses and corporations and uh individuals to find different ways of fundraising. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone writing, signing off a big fat check, although that would be very lovely. Um, you know, dinners and, you know, experiences that people can come to and where there's a percentage that, you know, uh, so, so things like that. So it's also for people who have ideas to reach out to us. Um, and then for Fujila, it's, it's very much, you know, it's been a difficult two years. So we've been riding this really rough wave and trying to just stay afloat. So to keep doing that, um, we're, we're selling, we, we were invited to sell our, our jewelry at the gift shop in the Malaysian pavilion at the Dubai Expo. Okay. So that's really, that's been really exciting for us. So it just started this month, October, and it runs until March next year. So really just trying to stay positive with a lot of the opportunities we have and, and to really capitalize on them and, 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 
um, and to grow Fuji. My, 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 my kind of thing this year is really just trying, we need to grow Fuji La bigger. We need to get out there more, you know? Yeah. Oh, well, that's really exciting. I mean, particularly that news about, um, being in the Malaysia pavilion at the, um, at the Dubai Expo, that's um, that the Malaysian government supports refugee relief. Yeah, exactly. So in this very indirect way, they yeah. are they are supporting it. So, <laughs> yeah, congratulations and thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for this chat and uh, and all the work that you do um, you. and all of the work that you continue to do. And um, yeah, it's such a pleasure. And I think you have so much to be proud of in terms of what you've accomplished thank you so much i mean it is end of the day i think just being able to have a little impact on someone else's life and that they can then you know today i may need help tomorrow um i mean tomorrow you may need help today i may right and so it's just seeing life in that way helps you just be a lot more compassionate and giving towards others so yeah That's it for me. Thank you for tuning in and you'll hear from me again next week. But until then, please subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify and send this episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it. Bye.